Hi everyone, welcome back to the Congressional App Challenge Debugged podcast. Today, I'm really excited to say that we have a super special guest, Christopher Adams. Christopher Adams is an analyst with the US Congressional Budget Office. He grew up in Melbourne, Australia and did his PhD in economics at the University of Wisconsin. He spent 17 years working in antitrust and competition policy at the US Federal Trade Commission. At the Congressional Budget Office, he has mostly worked on modeling issues around drug pricing policies. He's also learned to program in Logo on the Apple II when he was 12 years old, and that was circa circa 1982. We're so excited to have you, Chris. Um, How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's very, very cold here in uh, Vermont. Uh, Well, I guess I'm, I'm actually sitting here in New Hampshire, in Hanover, New Hampshire. It's a very cold day. Yeah, I completely understand. I'm in New York right now, and I'm sure it's colder for you, but very cold today. <laughs> I really want to learn a little bit about you and your role um, with all of the work that you've done um, regarding the CBO and the federal trade. So let's just get into it. Um, so considering that we're a tech-focused podcast, I wanted to ask, like, right. what role do you see machine learning playing in the Congressional Budget Office, specifically the impact it can have on, like, government decisions regarding drug policies? Right, so, um, you know, machine learning is, is becoming a, a more and more important um, tool uh, within economics and statistics. Um, at, at CBO, we're a, a small uh, nonpartisan agency, about 220 people or so, um, about half of which are PhD economists. We have also some statisticians and some others. Um, and you know, when we're working on legislative proposals, uh, we're uh, modeling those proposals to estimate the impact that they would have on uh, both the federal budget and um, the U.S. economy more generally. Um, t- to do that modeling, we use we have um, uh, really good data. We have data from um, uh, the executive branch uh, on um, how much people pay for drugs in uh, the Medicare program, uh, which is one of the largest uh, programs um, uh, f- for uh, purchasing drugs in, in, in the world. It's, a, it's actually yeah. a uh, re- reasonable chunk of, of, of revenue. Um, so we wanna understand what's gonna happen if you have a major policy change. Um, and so we'll use uh, statistical techniques of all, of all, si- all sorts. Um, the, the techniques that I have tended to use have tended to be fairly straightforward, not, not necessarily um, involving um, machine learning. The, the, one, um, the one thing we do uh, that, that I've done that's a little different um, is um, when we analyze the data, uh, we will uh, sometimes uh, use a technique called structural modeling um, so in, in structural modeling, we're using um, the economic theory to, to um, uh, model the data. So we're thinking that data comes from an actual economic model. 
Um, so that, that's been uh, an important way we've thought about um, uh, drug pricing policies using the, those types of techniques. Uh, throughout the, the agency, um, machine learning uh, and various statistical techniques are used. You know, so, some of these uh, machine learning models are actually very, very old. Some of them go back uh, to, the, to the 1930s and have been used in economics for decades. So, um, so, we, so we use them there. But I think they'll uh, continue to be, become um, more and more important in the, in the agency. That's so interesting. And so I wanted to further ask, like, what kinds of um, growing capabilities of technology in like data analysis specifically, do you foresee changing the field of like economics and like um, making decisions regarding like policy um, creation? So uh, at, the, at the moment we're uh, hiring people coming out with PhDs from various programs. And uh, what, we've, what we see when we look out at these students, a lot of them are using machine learning techniques. Um, so we, you know, we think that um, those techniques are going to become more important in our uh, data analysis. Um, yeah. The, um, the data we have is, is very complicated. Um, you know, we have lots of information about um, uh, uh, you know, why people take uh, various uh, drugs, um, and we have lots of information about um, uh, various health plans and um, uh, how the um, uh, what's available for people when they when they take take these drugs and. What machine learning does is it allows us to take these very complicated data sets and um, and uh, make them more digestible and easier and easier yeah. for the uh, for us to sort of work out what's going on. That makes a lot of sense. And so I wanted to ask, what got you started in trying to operate and at the intersection between econometrics and statistics as well as like applying that to you know policy um so i i've sort of come a long way around here i i started in my phd as a theorist and of of uh, throughout my career i've become less and less theoretical and more and more uh into applied and data work and statistical analysis um I think uh, part of the reason was part of the reason my interest in statistics and econometrics was that um, uh, the field itself, econometrics, has has changed yeah. a lot um, over over the last twenty years. Um, uh, when I when I started in my PhD program, um, uh, sort of. Econometricians seem to be very interested in, um, you know, what would happen if your data set uh, was unbelievably large, but they didn't say very much about what would happen if we wanted to use a data set to analyze a particular policy. Um, but in grad school, I was, very, I was very lucky to have a, a, a professor uh, by the name of 
Charles Mansky, who was much more interested in how, how do we use data to think about policy questions? And, and that, that to me made um, econometrics uh, a lot more interesting because uh, policy was, was the focus of, of, of the analysis. And, um, you know, for me, um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the policy questions sort of first, the cool statistical technique or the cool, you know, math or something like that, that's all, that's all second to the, you know, actually trying to understand the uh, implications of a, of a particular policy. That makes a lot of sense. And so you mentioned that grad school was something that was influential in your career choices and decisions. So I wanted to ask, you know, from the perspective of a college student, um, what in, what made you decide to pursue grad school um, and like further academia? Um, I, I had not been thinking about it when I was an undergrad. So I was an undergrad at Melbourne University. Yeah. Um, I got an opportunity to go on exchange to Penn State University yeah. um, and um, while I was there I I was allowed to take grad classes in the in the economics department so the economics department let me take uh, graduate uh, classes and it was was taking those classes that uh, got me interested in grad school. Um, so when I came home from from that experience, I, I I I took a number of classes where I was shown that economics um, can be used to do things that I was interested in. So I think I in as as an undergrad, I thought economics was about. Uh, the inflation rate or unemployment and at Penn State I learned well economics could be used to think about uh, labor contracts or you could think about unionization or um, uh, all, all sorts of things that I was a lot more interested in and so when I got back to Melbourne I talked to my professors about well how do, how do I go about getting a PhD in economics and they said, go to the US. <laughs> well, uh, great to hear that, like, that was a really cool journey that you were able to take. And, you know, studying abroad is something that's always, you know, I think something that's beneficial for people. And I wanted to ask, like, how was your study abroad experience, generally speaking, when you went on the exchange program? Oh, it's, it's an amazing experience. I think you, you know, you get out of your comfort zone you know, for me, I grew up in a, a pretty big city. To live in a small town like State College is is uh, is yeah. quite a big change. And you know, um, because of that, you get to you just start trying things that are that you haven't um, been up to do before. And so I was I was lucky that the professors at Penn State were very nice to us uh, and to me. And um, and so I got uh, opportunity to do things that I, I just would wouldn't have got um, or even even thought about doing at at Melbourne. That's incredible. And bouncing right off of that, you have a lot under your belt um, from teaching to publishing in academia to the Federal Trade Commission and CBO. What do you say, um, either work wise or personal wise, that you've enjoyed doing the most 
um, and contributing towards the most. You know, I, I like doing all those things. Uh, that's yeah. why that's why I do them all. Um, I I you know I as I said before, I think policy is really um, my my main interest, and yeah. being at a place like the Congressional Budget Office where you're a policy analyst, so I get to see r right up close what um, what policies. Um, the legislative and executive branch are working on, and and I can think about them and I can uh, analyze them. At the moment, I'm teaching at uh, Dartmouth for for the winter quarter, um, yeah. so th so this has been a a, a wonderful experience. Um, you know, the students here are amazing. Um, so you 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 get to see um, and you know interact with these amazing undergrads. Um, and so that that's a that's a lot of fun. That's incredible, and really appreciate that you enjoy interacting with undergrads as an undergrad myself. Yes. Um, so, pivoting back to the fact that um, you know a lot of our listeners are um, young coders, um, and you were also a young coder. And so, what do you think um, sparked your interest in coding at such a young age? And like, how have you been able to maintain? Um, like maintain that interest uh, throughout your time. Yeah, I was I was very lucky. Um, you know, I started coding said before in, in the early '80s, so we we got an Apple II, um, and the Apple II I think was the first PC where uh, this computer language called Logo could actually run. Um, the language itself had been uh, developed in the late. 60s, early 70s, um, but it wasn't until the 80s that it could actually run on a computer that you could have in your like in your home. Yeah. Um, uh, the language my my um, my father was a computer scientist, um, and my mother is, was a, um, a preschool teacher, um, and both of them were very interested in how do we use coding and computers to teach people, to teach people mathematics, to teach English, to teach economics, to teach uh, whatever. So um, uh, when, I, when I learned coding, it wasn't, uh, the, the coding itself wasn't, so the end goal, the end goal was modeling or doing something with the code. And, um, you know, now that I code in, in um, in R or Python or Julia, you know the uh, the the code itself is not the end goal. It's the the goal is is um, developing code to do something, to do a data analysis, to do a policy analysis, to do uh, to do modeling. That makes sense, and uh, I completely agree with that and relate to that and I think that's also the premise of the Congressional App Challenge in a way where um, there's a huge focus right. on like developing apps that are meaningful and using all of your coding that language right. to do something that creates an impact to um, to generally like general constituents um, in the US which is really important um, and I wanted to ask for people who are interested in you know trying to follow your footsteps um, what kind of character traits or abilities do you consider the most necessary um, for people trying to be in the next generation? 
you know, I think um, you know, the the technical skills being being out being comfortable yeah. with coding, not not necessarily being a uh, you know the most amazing coder ever, but just being comfortable um, in Python, for example, or or whatever language uh, you're right. using, um, and you know having good math skills i think is um you know it holds you in good stead for for lots of different jobs and lots of different things um you know for me i think economists um need to be interested in um policy and how people behave not not necessarily in government policy they could be interested in how you know Amazon decides to price or you know uh, other other issues but that they're interested in how people behave um, um, and they that they you know have these technical skills uh, will definitely help them get through uh, grad school and be be able to um, you know do good research do good uh, analysis that's awesome and really good to hear um, lastly, um, because you know you're so involved in research, I wanted to ask um, if you could choose one research paper to be the most impactful or um, one text of research, what would it be and what would you recommend that people who are interested in, um, in econometrics and everything to read? That's, a, that's an excellent question. I, I mentioned his name before, uh, Charles Mansky. Uh, mm -hmm. Chuck is a, a professor of econometrics at um, Northwestern University. Um, he uh, has written, uh, his research has become extremely influential in uh, econometrics itself, um, less so uh, in applied economics. So within the field of econometrics, his research is very uh, influential, but uh, it hasn't sort of seeped out into the the general applied um, field. Um, uh, I, th if you are interested in uh, who I think are the thought leaders in econometrics, then yes. uh, then that's the person that I would Google uh, is is Chuck and and uh, and just start going through his his papers he has amazing things to say about how both how you do data analysis and how you should do data analysis that's awesome um and thank you so much i really appreciate like all of your input um lastly i wanted to ask if there was anything else you wanted to add any kind of advice to our listeners I know. Th thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a very cool program that you're doing. Uh, so thank you for your work here. Um, you know, I think the opportunity for um, high school students to, you know, create code that that is is going to be useful to people. Um, I, I think I think that's that's really cool. And getting more high school students interested in these sort of uh, uh, activities uh, is a is a great thing. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the kind words as well as you taking the time today uh, to speak to us a little bit about your experience. Um, with that being said, I'll pass it over to our next segment to talk a little bit about stuff that's going on in the world regarding tech.
Hello everyone, I'm Michael Batavia and welcome back to another installment of the Pop Culture Bite, where we'll give you the latest and greatest news in tech that is affecting pop culture today. To start off, Meta is opening its first ever retail location this Monday, May 9th, in its Burlingame, California campus in an effort to sell people its Oculus virtual reality headsets and bring people closer to its imagining of the Metaverse. In the store, customers will be able to try on the VR headsets, play some games on them, and check out other related Meta equipment such as its Portal and Rayban Stories smart glasses. According to the company's spokesperson, Meta aims to give people a glimpse into the future while demystifying the concept of the Metaverse to appeal to all ages. However, this is likely happening due to the poor sales of VR headsets overall amongst teens and other Meta consumers. Compared to the majority of the company's revenue from its core apps, Instagram and WhatsApp, that make up to $28 billion, its Reality Labs VR division only makes $695 million and it is a money sink for Meta, posting a loss of $2.96 billion in the first quarter of 2022. It's quite a net loss. <laughs> However, the company believes that VR and the Metaverse will continue to be an area of expense growth until the far future. They will continue investing money in the area until Reality Labs obtains a profit. In the words of Mark Zuckerberg himself, Meta hopes that the Metaverse will lead to a very exciting 2030s. On the flip side of the emerging technology of the Metaverse, there is also emerging technology towards renewable energy. Last year, the Energy Observer, the first ship in the world to be powered with just hydrogen and solar energy, made its trip from Hawaii to Tokyo to promote renewable energy during the 2020 Tokyo Summer Games. The ship's roof is covered with 202 square meters of solar panels that power everything from the onboard engines to the kitchen appliances. During a sunny day when the ship is not moving, the excess solar energy from the panels is used to power electrolysis that converts water molecules into pure oxygen and hydrogen. The hydrogen is then stored in eight tanks that can power the ship alone for six days. Other seawater that gets pumped in is also collected and warmed to provide warmth and hot water for the ship's residents. The sails also had to be uniquely engineered to provide less shade for its residents in exchange for more wind power, which can provide 15 knots of power to the ship alone. Wow. It, it also runs autonomously through a built-in autopilot. The only problem, though... <laughs> is that the ship's residents always require an engineer on board to ask them whether they can run the dishwasher or have a hot meal to not run out of energy on their cruise. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this week's Pop Culture Bites. We hope you enjoyed it and got a dose on what's been trending for the last few weeks. We'll be back next week with our special two-part episode interviewing venture capitalists and hearing their feedback against the pitches of our Congressional App Challenge winners. I'm Michael Batavia. Now back to you, Meta. And that's that. Thanks so much to our tech news expert. And thank you so much to our tech fans and listeners. This has been the Congressional App Challenge Debugged Podcast. Be sure to check us out on all podcast streaming platforms. And if you want to hit up our social medias, check out the Congressional App Challenge on Twitter and Instagram. I'm your host, Medha Gupta, signing off. Thanks for listening. Bye.